Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening okay. to a podcast from The Word. Welcome back to Word in Your Ear. Um, I'm not ashamed to say I grew up in the 1960s. I was a teenager in the 1960s. Time of great change. Time when you weren't certain of a lot of things. But the only thing you were certain of in a shifting world was that if you put on In the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett you could instantly transform the most unpromising scout hut in the north of England into for however long it ran, how long did it run? I don't know, two minutes, something, into into a kind of juke joint in Mississippi. Such was its power, and, and its power remains undiminished across the years. And if ever any record deserved having a book suddenly named after it and the person and, and telling the story of the person who authored that record it's in the midnight hour by Wilson Pickett uh, that is the subject of, of the latest book by our, our guest uh, this evening who's previously written books about uh, about the Smiths and about REM and novels and also has managed to to cram in somehow an extraordinary schedule of, of, of globe-trotting around the world with his family in a very enviable way that, you know, many of us have told ourselves that we're going to do, and, but he's actually done it. So that's one of the things I'm going to, I'm going to cover uh, this evening. But would you please welcome Tony Fletcher. Evening. Good Thanks. evening, Tony. Thank nice to me. have you here. Now, yeah. you are, you know, you and Barney used to be briefly neighbours. We, we overlapped. I, 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 that was so bizarre, sitting here, having just travelled across the ocean from Woodstock, to sit here and hear Barney talk about my hometown. Right. <laughs> so how long have you, have you been out in the States? I moved out in the, at the very end of the 1980s, uh, 87, 88. It, it, was, it was about a year-long process of managing to take my freelance work over there. Essentially, my story was that um, having been raised in South London, I was born in Yorkshire but lived in South London from the age of two. Uh, I, you're a child of the 60s, I'm a child of the 70s. I thought I was um, uh, raised sort of anti-American, that, that the whole place was complete crap. Um, thanks to the, all the punk bands. And uh, the first day I stepped foot in New York City, which was in 1986, I just went, I have to live here. Right. Um, and I had not expected that to happen, and I'm, I managed to make that happen. I spent best part of a decade in um, Manhattan, and then, as happens, you get married, you have a kid, we moved down to Brooklyn, uh, and then along the lines, down, down the way, you have another kid, and that migration up to the Catskills is actually a pretty common migration, as Barney talked about, with the sort of the, what they call the creative types. So you were in Brooklyn before it was hipster heaven, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it felt pretty good to be in Brooklyn, but we actually did see our neighbourhood change dramatically, um, drastically, and, uh, you know, for, for, good, for, for good and for bad. I mean, we, we, you know, it was very interesting to see the demographics of our street change and the avenue at the top of our street, which when we moved there, we weren't really sure we'd made the right move because um, 
you know, there was gunfire at night, that kind of thing. By the time we, by the time we left, it was uh, just like every storefront was taken and was some like hip restaurant that we just didn't have time or money or by the end of it, inclination to check out. Right, right. So you've written a, a number of books, uh, music books, but so why Wilson Pickett? What made you, you know, the, the, land on this subject? I mean, the really short answer is that just one day I was listening to Wilson Pickett and it just dawned on me I don't believe there's a book on this person, and that seems odd. And obviously, in the, these days of the internet, I knew it wasn't on my bookshelf. It only took five minutes more to realise it didn't exist. And I thought, let me, um, let me at least look into his life, because maybe his life's just really boring, and that's why there's been no book about him. Uh, but it wasn't, but it wasn't no, was it, Tony? No, and I didn't suspect... As we it, will discover. I didn't suspect it would... I mean, Do you think to yourself he'd had a quiet domestic life sitting at home, yeah. you know, I mean, just you watching the voice, telly? You think, yeah, by yeah, 10 o'clock yeah. every yeah. night. Yeah, you <laughs> listen to that voice, you think, there's, there's a guy who curls in, you know, put, uh, turns in early at night. I mean, the longer answer is one that I probably don't have to give here, which I have to give on American interviews, which is that we... You, you kind of said it, at the beginning, we all grew up listening to this music, whether you're a child of the 60s or 70s or probably beyond. We all, the Brits, certainly the kind of Brits in this room, appreciate American soul. So I don't have to explain that part um, about what's a Brit doing writing this book. But, but that was the, the, uh, the shorter answer. And I had a couple of years earlier done a road trip um, across America with the family and we'd gone to, to Memphis, spent a few days there. The Stax Museum is a, a, of American soul. It's a wonderful place. And it was kind of, in my mind, I think somewhere down there I was kind of like like feeling the music of the South a bit more than I had in the past. And you did a trip around America, didn't you? About three and three and a half, four thousand miles, just travelling around meeting Pickett's relatives yeah, and I mean, I did the, friends. I, and... Yeah, I had to do a few trips here and there that, that, were, that were separate. I mean, I went to Alabama once uh, to meet his brother and get the ball rolling. I went to Florida to meet some people philadelphia dc but then literally about two years ago from now in the winter um i took my mini and drove around 13 different states um not quite in the order of wilson's life but i, I almost actually more in the reverse order um but it was it was actually really really enjoyable to do that and uh very surprisingly all the interviews that were lined up beforehand worked out i mean i don't know how often you would you know you wouldn't bet money on that but no, every no, one of no. them that was laid out actually actually happened. And so people were happy to talk about it? They really were. Um, I've done books where the doors have been slow to open or they sometimes certain doors haven't opened. Um, I think this... I don't want to get too... You know, there's that kind of like don't ask thing, don't, look, don't examine too much. I think that this just turned out to be the right book at the right time right. and people's doors open and I I have to say that it's the first time I mean, I've written about the South before because I've written about REM and uh, I've written about black music before because I did a book on the history of the New York City music scene but I hadn't done a book uh, you know, about the Southern Soul Singer right. and I have to say the musicians who worked with Wilson and it's not just from the South because some of them were from Detroit and New York and so on but that community of people working in that music they don't carry grudges and we were talking about Levon and other people, and, and I've been around people who carry grudges. There are very few people with grudges around Wilson. They were mostly really just happy to talk. Right. Now, so in many senses, he had a kind of archetypal yeah. upbringing for that generation of you know, African-American singers. So yeah. tell us a, a bit about where he came from. And, you know, these pictures are... Uh, sure. Are, Quite indicative. Of where he came from. Yeah, and I, I actually took the one on the left, but that's not where he was born. That's where he was uh, brought up. He was born in a two-room shack. I mean, it's... That's it's, the four-room breeze block. House, that's the yeah. four-room breeze block. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, at least it's, it's big enough that I couldn't get it all into one picture while actually standing... Uh, well, that's because there's weeds all the way in front of you. You have to actually crawl through sort of bushes that have overgrown, so there's very little room to actually get the picture. Uh, but no, he was born in a two-room shack. He was born in where, a shack... Where? In, I'm sorry. Pratt, in, Prattville? Prattville, in which was then rural Alabama. It's now not just a satellite town of... Um, satellite suburb of Montgomery, but almost attached to Montgomery. It will be within another 10 years, I'm quite sure. Uh, but at that point that he was born there, it was the country. 
it was plantations, it was cotton picking. That's what yeah. you did. Um, it was a couple of generations out of slavery, and I and mean, they had milk cows, made their own syrup and butter. Yeah, I mean, one of the one oaks. of the interesting things you see that, and you say, wow, that is the classic, you know, literally old school upbringing. But talking to his older sisters and and even to his younger brother, no, more more the older sisters. They said we were poor, but we didn't know we were poor because actually we had what we needed because there was a self sufficiency mm. going on there that you did grow what you needed. And uh, the few families, they were very, very spread apart. Um, it was really rural, but people did look after each other. And there's a weird paternalism going on with the plantation family. I mean, it's not slavery as it used to be. It's still sharecropping. But there is a sense that maybe they're halfway looking after you now. I mean, as long as you probably know your place. So you talk about how he was brought up in a very kind of tough school in terms of discipline from parents and so mm -hmm. forth. And, and um, a lot of that was because they were worried about, about their children being over-familiar with white people. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, and funnily enough, there was a review just came out in the States today that really honed in on that, so it's, it's interesting you raise it. By the way, that's his father. That's one of right. the few pictures he of his father. Did, who went to Excellent. jail for, for bootleg whiskey. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there's, that, that's part of a kind of racist system because they didn't send white people to jail yeah. for a year for making moon, moonshine. And, uh, uh, you, you know, black people were limited on where they could buy the yeah. stuff to begin with. Mm. So it was just another thing, you know, lock up your dad for a year when your dad's the breadwinner and he's actually got a job, maybe. Um, that, that all factors into it. But no, look, Wilson was brought up in a family where uh, beatings were common. They called them whoopings. And the whole Southern culture, African-American culture, kids grew up with that way into the 50s and 60s. Um, and I was researching newspaper stories about this because nowadays it's frowned upon. Some football player had done it. It, re it reopened these old wounds. But they were doing it because their parents had done it to them, yeah. their parents had done it to them. They, the people weren't necessarily stopping to think, but hang on, it started with the slave driver doing it to us. And that, that was a jump across the races because it wasn't ongoing back in Africa. And so this sense of like, well, that's how you raise your kids. I, I just thought it was necessary to pause and at least look at that and say, yeah. well, where does, this, where does this actually start? Where does this come from? And then there is what you just mentioned, David, this kind of dichotomy to it, or con a contradiction that actually it did become necessary for a mother maybe to really you know, get, the, get, the, get the stick, get the frying pan, whatever, because in the a, in, in a case of a Wilson Pickett, if you spoke like that to a white girl and somebody heard it, you may not come home that night. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is for your own protection. You talk about how even as a young man, he kind of, um, he, he, he cultivated a reputation for being mean. I think mean is the word you use. Is that, is well, mean a... is the word his stepmother used, but, but um, there's, there's certain vernacular uh, that I came across um, researching this book. And I'm not sure that mean in the, in the African-American vernacular meant quite the same. I think it sort of meant tough. No, well, you can, you can look after yourself, yeah. can't it? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it mean, meant necessarily selfish. No, no. I think no. it meant tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Wilson was indisputably tough. And, and pointed guns at people from an early age. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we, I was amazed to find out that he'd managed to talk his mother into buying him a gun at the age of about 12 because that's yeah. really the last thing Wilson needed was a rifle. But yeah. he was able... Um, Wilson, so his sisters told me, he was, he was like an ace with the slingshot, so he could kill rabbits with a slingshot. I mean, he didn't really need the gun to be able to kill rabbits. He was able to go off into the woods with a, you know, what we call the, yeah, what did we call them? We didn't call them, we called them catapults. Catapults, catapults yeah. Yeah, 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 we yeah. called them catapults, but he was able to go off and, and kill rabbits with those. Um, but yeah, he did, he did get that um, obsession with guns very, very early on. Right, right. So, yeah. and, and, but married very early... And this is yeah, in fact, this is the, the earliest known picture of him, isn't it, with, with his with his two kids? Yeah, it is. I'm I'm actually somewhat surprised that we couldn't find an earlier picture, given that I had the family's help. But that maybe tells you something. Yeah. Um, when you think of our digital footprints these days, that's the earliest picture of yeah. Wilson Pickett that seems to exist, and he's already married with two kids by the time the picture's taken. But it, it, there's a moment in the book which is. Um, Oh, no, we've got the Falcons. Yeah, unfortunately, he's not in this picture, actually, because there's no picture, I think, of the Falcons featuring Wilson right. Pickett, although his name appears on the, on the sleeve. But. So that's well, his kind of first breakthrough record, isn't it, with the yeah, Falcons? Yeah, and I need, to, I need to set the stall for that, because um, so Wilson's from Alabama, from rural Alabama. 
if people know that, that about about the uh, history there, the Great Migration of Blacks out of the South, out of the rural South into the industrial North, which took place in a couple of waves. Wilson's father moved up in the 50s, and the idea was the family would move up. Um, they kept having it, it was it was complicated as lives are. Mum moved up with Wilson and with other babies, then would come back again. Actually, usually when she was pregnant to give birth down south, and eventually it didn't all work out. And Dad stayed up there, and the kids stayed back. Wilson, having had a taste of Detroit because he'd lived there for a couple of years as a small boy, clearly knew he was not cut out for picking cotton for the white guy. Yeah. He um, had this voice. It was a voice that set the local church alight. He knew that he was um, destined for greatness if he could take his voice somewhere. That meant going up north to Detroit. So somewhere between his parent, his mother figuring that it was best off that he was sent out of the South for his own safety, perhaps, and his own desire to get up there, he went to Detroit. He did go up there to sing gospel. I mean, for all Wilson's sins, he was a very Christian person. And he went up there to sing gospel. He toured with a group called the Violinaires for a year or two. And um, then the Falcons seized on him when Joe Stubbs, the Levi Stubbs brother who's in that picture, um, uh, top left, actually um, his ego got a bit too big for the group. And, um, and uh, they actually, Willie Schofield, the bass singer who you see on the bottom right, had found Wilson singing on a back porch in Detroit, singing actually a blues song, interestingly, with his own guitar and just heard that voice and actually walked past once and said, no, I have to come back and, and basically brought Wilson in kind of as a managerial uh, act because yeah, brought him into the group. The, the, the big hit was I Found a Love, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's Wilson's Which big is, hit. It was an extraordinary oh, sound. It's an amazing song. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm having great fun because on the radio now, I'm getting that song played. And it's really enjoyable. People are asking about this early record and we're hearing it again on the radio. It's If you haven't heard it, just go home and YouTube it whatever, um, to, it's prototype soul. It's 1961, and you can hear gospel giving way to rhythm and blues, giving way to soul, all in one song. It's, it's phenomenal. The reason, um, by the way, Wilson's not in the picture is because he was kind of signed by Willie as a solo act. Wilson always had carried on performing solo even while he was with the Falcons. So that's part of the explanation for it. So talk about, the, uh, this is the kind of background of, you know, when he started to come through, isn't it? You know, in terms of what's happening in music, kind of the first wave of rock and roll has gone away and it's pre-Beatles, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so Sam Cooke and Ray Charles and... I think for Wilson, um, I mean, you're right, this is what was going on. I think for Wilson, Sam Cooke was enormous because he saw Sam uh, and, and would have traced Sam back to the church for sure. Uh, I don't think Ray Charles was the same influence. Wilson was passionate about gospel music. I mean, he was a massive fan of gospel music, and he modelled himself on a couple of singers I mentioned, Archie Brownlee of the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi and uh, Jules Cheeks of the Sensational Nightingales. If you listen to those two, you can hear the prototype screams that Wilson then kind of took on and perfected. He was fortunate, not just fortunate, because he chose, he made his way to Detroit. He was there for the birth of Motown. He was in the studios with the same groups of people. Um, the Primettes were around, which was the Supremes, Supremes under a different yeah. name, were around Wilson. He knew Barry Gordy. They were all moving in the same circles. He was part of that rhythm. And, you know, when gospel turned to the vocal groups, turned to Motown, he, that's where he was in Detroit. So very ambitious. Definitely. A networker, hardworking, getting to know people, moving himself forward. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, his ambition is best um, portrayed or exemplified by the fact that when he left the Falcons, and they broke up actually after he left, and, and we didn't mention that Eddie Flo it was Eddie Floyd's group. Yeah, and, was, uh, in I that think that's Eddie Floyd there. That's Eddie Floyd, <laughs> and uh, Mac Rice should be in that picture as well. And I was thinking that was Mac Rice at the top right and Joe Stubbs top left, and then Lance Finney, the guitarist. So you've got Eddie Floyd, Mac Rice, Joe Stubbs, and actually Joe Stubbs and Wilson Pickett were in the group at the same time occasionally. So you've got four pretty strong mm. singers in that group. But Wilson um, recorded If You Need Me, and uh, well, he actually recorded another single first, but then he recorded the song If You Need Me, and it was um, when he realized that something was going to happen with that song, he basically loaded the U-Haul with his girlfriend, Dovey Hall, who I know you've got a picture yeah. of, and they basically drove to New York City to start life afresh. So yes, he was 
ambitions. He was willing to make that move and, and take that jump. And we've got some pictures of people who are sort of sort of contemporaries. We'll get yeah. on to Ray Charles later, who's not in that. But you know, but you know, Jackie Wilson and you know Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson, Aretha Franklin. I mean, you know, what what these were his sort of rivals. Some of them they were contemporaries, weren't they? Contemporaries yeah. are friends. I mean, Aretha, he was really good friends with from from Detroit. Um, I heard rumours that yeah, more than good friends, but I heard that about Wilson with just about everybody. <laughs> um, and I'm not, the to- I'm not totally surprised. Um, he, was, he was definitely tight with Aretha. I mean, right to the point that she was billed to be speaking at his funeral. Um, she didn't, but she was billed to be. Um, uh, who else? You mentioned The Temptations. Yeah, he was around with The Temptations. And... Um, Jackie Wilson was out of Detroit as well. So, yeah, you've got all of these connections. And like most soul singers, he really did look up to, uh, to Otis. He greatly admired Otis. And I think it was a desire to get some of what Otis had that sent him, that, that called him to recording down at Stax. Yes, and Otis, similarly, is, is a kind of country boy, isn't he? Well, there's a, to me, it's really interesting. We're, we're sort of ju- you know, possibly jumping ahead, but Otis was stayed Southern. And uh, I always like listening to that song Tramp, the duet with Carla Thomas, because I, I sometimes wonder if there was a little bit of Otis there because, because Wilson was cityfied by living in Detroit and New York City, and Otis wasn't. So Otis had sort of the mannerisms of the southern black guy, and yeah. Wilson had the mannerisms of the tough northern black guy. It's know? amazing, that stuff, because it runs right through all that music, doesn't it? You know, like you say, Tramp and yeah. Alvin Robinson, Down Home Girl, and all these yes. things. It was all about, you know, are you country or are you city? Yeah. And it's something that's kind of disappeared from music mm. nowadays, you know. Yeah. But it was yeah. a huge reflection of the life experience of these people, wasn't it? It was. And uh, although Wilson did all his best recording down south, he was, he was not... That was not him. That definitely not him. He had an urban element to right, him quite right. early on. Just to just remind Sorry. me what a chaotic and gangsterish world it was. You know, Aretha Franklin was first pregnant when she was 13. She had two children by the age of 16, didn't she? And, yeah, you know, and her dad, who was a famous preacher who mentored um, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, had an illegitimate child by, uh, by a very young girl himself. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, yeah... Interesting, strange, yeah, strange, strange world. Yeah. So these yeah, people were, were never brought down by scandal or anything like this because they're, you, know, you might well, say there was a mismatch was, between what they preached and what they practised. And nor was JFK at the time. And, um, you, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm being serious. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, yeah, because right. because um, the world was a different place. It was completely. Yeah. It was a different place. And you know, I just watched the movie Selma again just a couple of weeks back. And I, it, you know, it was made by a female African-American uh, director. And I think there's something very subtle at the start of that movie where you see them, everybody's congregating in Selma and you don't quite know whose house it is, but you see the women cooking for all these guys who are coming in who are, who are effectively leading the civil rights battle. Um, you know, and they're all just like grabbing the food and, and they're sitting down and helping themselves. And she's making a point about they're out there to to get black people to vote, yeah. but there's still this very clear delineation of sexes within that mm. household. It's a yeah. very subtle point. And so these are different times. And I think that's something in the book I have to be careful of. It's You can write about stuff 50 years later and judge people, but unless you've lived in those times, it's hard. Yeah, you take it out of context. You're absolutely yeah. right. No, it's true. I think we've got a picture. Yeah, this is just the most yeah. extraordinary moment in the book because it gets across just the extent of his charm and his effect on women. So tell us the story. This is Dovey Hall, the girl that he... Uh, yeah, was she's six years with. older than him, and yeah. she, um, he met her. He actually... I really like the story. He obviously had his eye on her. He was not performing that night at a place in Detroit, but he'd had his solo hit, and he had his eye on her all night and apparently, like, stood at the wall, you know, against the wall, and just, like, looked at her... And it wasn't until somebody else, like three hours into the evening, came up and talked to her that he came over and said, is that your boyfriend? And she said, no, I'm not with someone. I came with a girlfriend tonight. And he said, well, can I talk to you? And, and she had been noticing him. And um, they fell in love that night. And she had actually a child of her own from a, a marriage but was living with the dad, which might be quite unusual. She was 26 and she had some money just from doing, doing her job. And she really took him under her wing. She said he had one suit and he was performing all the time. He was in the dry cleaners, out the dry cleaners. She brought him clothes. She brought him a watch. And he said, I promise you, you know, when I make money, I'll look after you. And when he made his first 500 bucks, um, you know, he put it in her, in her money belt. And they set off to New York City together. I saw Dovey only two weeks ago when I did an event in Memphis and um, she's 82 and she's in good shape. Um, 
the, the Memphis connection is 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 coincidental. Uh, and she came out to the reading wearing, if not if they weren't leather pants, they were black black vinyl pants. We can all do this when we're eighty two. Yeah. But there's there's another moment in the book which I thought was just so astonishing when his old girlfriend, now he's married and has two kids at the time. A girlfriend, an ex-lover of his, turns up at, a, at, a, at the Apollo, I think it is, and Apollo. dumps their love child. She's white as well, isn't yes. she? Dumps their love child. And Dovey yes. Hall took this boy on yeah. and brought him up as her own child. I mean, that's... That is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Story. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't know that that is anywhere remotely normal. I think Wilson... Look, everybody who knows Wilson knows that Dovey was fantastic for him. I, uh, I think he knew that. And the fact that he could call her from the Apollo, I mean, the way she told it is he called her from the Apollo and said, Davi, I've got a situation here. I've got a baby. The baby's mine. And... Um, she literally left... left she came well, the- uh, yeah, I think it was a few months old at that point. And from what I understand, because the mum really did drop out of the picture, from what I understand from people who, whose memories I have to trust, I mean, that, that mum tried raising it. I think there were issues of the colour. It was easier given that you only needed a drop of black blood to be black, it was easier to drop a mixed-race baby into a black family than to raise a mixed-race baby yeah. in a white family. I'm not saying you couldn't do that in New York City. It wouldn't have been impossible, probably, if there'd been a dad around and Wilson wasn't around. And Dovey says she... she Said Wilson, I love you. You better bring the baby here. And she said and Wilson, that not not the not the not the natural father really was it. When, when the boy is fourteen, he gives him a little chat about the birds and the bees, and then gets him to share a, 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 a source of cocaine. I, I mean, he's fourteen year old. I, know, boy. I just had to is, mention that. Just the thing is, Mark, the way you say it is actually funny, and it's like it's like <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's like the way you say it. It's the way you say it. <laughs> It's like some of the stories I heard about Keith Moon. Um, when I was writing about Keith Moon, it's sort of similar stories. I, the picture I'd had on my wall when I was younger of him sitting under the champagne bottle yeah. embedded in the wall, finding out from Kim, his wife, well, do you know why it's in the wall? No, no, he threw it at my head. Yeah. You know, it's like these are the people that, that you know, in one sense we, we do think they're wonderful. In another sense, of course, they have their, their problems. One of Wilson, I... I God knows, you know, I, I wish otherwise on him. I'm sure Dovey did. Wilson seemed to have a problem with that boy. Um, and that's really unfortunate. Dovey raised um, Michael as her own. Um, and um, in turn, I do believe, and I hope I'm not breaking any secrets here, that part of Michael's share of uh, Wilson's estate, sort of, you know, the small part makes its way back to her um, because they were never married, Wilson and, and yeah. Dovey never married. They'd both been married and they said, we don't need to get married. So, of course, when she moved out of the picture, she didn't have any claim on yeah, anything yeah. and never made a claim either. She wasn't that type of person. How, how, how are you responding yourself when you're, you know, researching this book and you're finding out these things about him? Do you, the negative do you, things, you mean? Yeah, do you find it difficult to warm to him? Well, <laughs> you know, I think that although the book has been getting like like really really good reviews, there's a, there's a degree to which I think I have maybe um, maybe not done my job because a few people are are saying to me in writing that that he's he's a hard person to like, and I actually think that Wilson seems to have been eminently likable and a, a, obviously. You mentioned charismatic, and if you know, watch any of the videos. I mean, it just jumps off. He's the kind of person that, if he walked in the room now, like everybody's heads would turn because they'd know somebody walked into the room. They'd know that yeah. he was more, he was bigger than us. They would know that. And I think he was really, really likable. But he had his demons, and he couldn't beat them, and he wouldn't take the help to beat them. And that makes it really tough to to, to write about. It is, it is, and I think. You know, more so than the Moon Book, where there was enough humour in the downfall. I think I tried to just like condense a lot of bad years here because the repetitiveness would have just been wearing, really wearing on the reader. Right, right. Because well, he, he described him as being utterly charming, and then yeah. when he drinks and takes drugs, he's utterly obnoxious. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and here he is being utterly charming with a, yeah. one, of, one of his first cars. You know, yeah, uh, and that—that I couldn't get the date on that picture. That's a, in color. That picture looks even better. It's actually pristine. I mean, you know, uh, can't deny it. I mean, he wasn't just born with a voice. Uh, as as one 
of his secretaries who became his lovers said, you know, he happens to be that 1.1% of the male population who's born with 32 perfect teeth. Yeah. You know, I mean, and he never, he didn't have to work out. He just looked like that. Well, he was an athlete Nobody at school. Nobody worked out then, did they? He didn't no, have well, to. he was an athlete at school when he was a wrestler, so I should maybe take that. He worked out, he worked out with his fists often enough right, that, right, that, right. that he did stay, stay fit. But I mean, you know, he got he dealt more than one car. There are other people who have been born with great voices who don't look as good as that, and, yeah. and they don't wear clothes as well as that, and they don't have teeth as good as that. So one of his early uh, record contracts, I think you talk about in the book, was uh, what he wanted was a car, didn't he, Rick? Uh, no, actually, I mean, you're, 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 you're halfway there. He was signed with Lloyd Price. Uh, Lloyd Price is still alive and is, is worthy of a book in his own right as somebody who wrote Lordy Miss Claudy, um, was one of the first black kind of teeny bop pin-up rock and roll stars. He feels he got shipped off to Korea just when his career, when his career, yeah, when his own good. career was taken off. He came back and started a record label with uh, uh, a guy, Harold Logan, who was definitely a, a gangster, but his view was that the record companies were ripping off, so he needed somebody in his, his camp. They started this label, Double L. Wilson Pickett shows up, or his producer shows up with If You Need Me. Seems like the ideal match. Wilson and Lloyd couldn't get on too well. The story is that Lloyd um, went all the way to Detroit to pick out a perfect car for Wilson because that's how you paid artists in those days still. And Wilson came, met him around Central Park and said, I don't want that car. I want a car like yours. I want a better car than that. So, um, so he actually dissed Lloyd and said, no, I'm not taking the car. That car's not good enough for me. Right. Which is kind of a, you know, which, which to be fair and to be honest is a negotiating tactic. It's like, I don't want 10% royalty, I want 15%. You're just talking about mm. cars. That car's only worth that much money, I want the car that's worth this much money. He had a manager from quite early on, didn't he? Yeah, guy called Jimmy Evans. Basically, when he walked out of Lloyd Price's office um, saying, I ain't going to record for you anymore... Um, and there's stories about that. And Lloyd said, yeah, we let him go. And I think, yeah, it doesn't ultimately matter. But in the same building was a booking agent called Jimmy Evans, uh, who was mafia, uh, white mafia, Italian mafia. So he moves out of Harold, Harold Logan being a... Harold Logan was ultimately uh, shot dead in a nightclub he owned with Lloyd Price called The Turntable. They never found his killer, although... Uh, somebody has, has, you know, later, there's, there's, there's a whole side story. If you look in the notes of the book, I mean, because it fascinates me. But Jimmy Evans was pure mafia. He'd already been booking Wilson, so they knew each other. By all accounts, Jimmy looked after Wilson pretty well. I guess that these were two people who knew between them how to get paid. And, um, uh, you know, I don't really know what to say to that. Jimmy Evans is, you know, he died. He's not somebody you find pictures of, but he's somebody... <laughs> He's somebody that a lot of people said, you know, it, it's, it's really funny. He was mafia, but he was a pretty nice guy. And he looked after Wilson. And what, what are you going to do? He's, he, was, he was an okay guy. Yeah, yeah. You just wouldn't mess with him. There's a moment where he, I think he tries to get out of a record contract by holding a gun to somebody's head, you know. No, that, that, that's, that... And, and you put that in your Sunday Times review. That is a quote that Rick Hall gave that I actually say, no way would he have done that because he, oh, sorry. The, 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 <laughs> the assumption is that he put it to Lloyd Price or Harold Logan. Hello, Subtest, can we tell it's too late? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, the only record contract he could have done that with would have been the one with Double L. And I, as I said, that anybody who put a gun to Harold Logan's head better make sure that he pulled the trigger. Oh, it right. would have been the last thing he did. <laughs> and ultimately, somebody did do that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, no, he, it's not... Although later, there are later years where... Um, uh, he, you know, he carries guns around Atlantic to prove a well, point. Well, he carried guns and, and, and you know, the, the Black Panthers had a, a, a couple of shots at him, I think, didn't they, at one stage when he... Yeah, he dissed, he dissed uh, a woman, um, some, something going on with a couple of girls uh, in a hotel room and uh, they called in their, their boyfriends and it was, you know, somebody told me, one of his band members that night, that I was standing opposite the hotel and this whole scene had been going on and I saw this car come along, Wilson standing outside with another bandmate and I saw this car slow down. I just went, Wilson, get down! And he ducked and three bullets were fired. The car sped off and they went over and there's the bullet holes right where Wilson yeah. was standing. So, you know, he could, have, he could have gone the way that Tupac went or Biggie went. And I, I do see those kind of, yeah. you know, some of this was, was, was the hip-hop of its day. I always look, look at Wilson and see a little bit of old dirty bastard in him, you know? Yeah. Now, very keen on his, his appearance. He's a dandy, isn't he? So how yeah. did he, you know, what, what sort of lengths would he go to to, you know, to well, be turned out the right way? 
Um, extreme lengths. I mean, he would spend a lot of money on clothing. And uh, if we jump all, give you an example, all the way forward to 1999, the last album he made, um, uh, Mick Rock did the photo session for it. And uh, Wilson knew this was a big deal. So he went out and spent $6,000 on a suit for the photo session. Right. So, I mean, he lived like that all the way through. One of the things I love, I've... I've um, the live footage of him, I've, I've actually put together a playlist of his top 20 performances on YouTube because there's so many and I wanted to kind of just make it easier for people to find them. And he's the kind of guy that, you know, he's sweating and, you know, people did wear shirts and ties. You know, we know about the Beatles. They, that was, you, you went to work, you know, and you were wearing your uniform and you, you're wearing mm. your suit. But he really looks good when he's sweating in his clothes. He really, <laughs> really people did People always thought they were getting their money's worth, didn't they? If people were Absolutely. actually sweating on yeah. stage, you know. yeah. He really was. He was a great dresser. Yeah, I think he just knew how to look. Shamanistic look at, look at Look at there yeah. again. I mean, th these are the guys from Muscle Shoals, from the Fame Studios. Um, Rod, uh, the Roger Hawkins in the back there, just about pulling off a decent shirt. The rest of them, obviously, you know, Spooner Oldham's wearing yes. an old-fashioned suit behind Wilson. Wilson, again, look at him. He looks the part. Yes, yeah, he's yeah. working, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he looks yeah, the part. Yeah. yeah. So is he, that really the studio, the Muscle Shoals? studio that it's, a, it's yeah that's the muscle shoals studio you that just can't imagine it'd be so kind of prosaic really you know it's just that's the one that the stones recorded at um in america the documentary made about muscle shoals in which rick hall gives that quote about wilson putting the gun to somebody's yeah. head that ended up being picked up by pbs and it was shown regularly and a lot of people have seen that documentary i don't know if it's been so widely seen in the uk it's a great documentary there are multiple Studios. These guys eventually uh, break away from Rick Hall and Fame Studios, open their own place. And Wilson did record there, and that's where the Stones recorded. And you can go there and check out that place. It's got its souvenirs up. It's got the pictures of the Stones in there and all the other artists that recorded in there. And like a lot of these places, it's the magic that's in with, yeah. within the walls. It's, it's an old funeral parlour. So we, we're jumping about a bit, yeah, right? a little chronologically, because yeah. these are two different studios in Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but when he first went to Muscle Shoals, which is yeah. back down in Alabama, isn't it? Yeah, he, he didn't like the idea. You know, there's cotton fields, and you know, right. It, yeah, exactly. Because he shouldn't been, be working here. No, he'd been to Memphis and had success um, recording at Stax. So his career really took off, hit the big time with the, the song that the book is named after. When um, between him and Jerry Wexler, it had they'd had two singles that had flopped on Atlantic. They went to, to Stax uh, very very quickly. You know, Stax was its own label. It was distributed by Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic had already loaned Sam and Dave and sort of put them under the, the, the Stax logo. Wilson was the first artist to go in and record from outside. After he did three sessions, Don Covey did one. Stax said, you know what? We want to protect our sound. No more outside artists. At the same time, Percy Sledge showed up, showed up in Atlantic from Muscle Shoals, so they had a new studio to go to. Right, right. And yet, down in Muscle Shoals, Wilson was like, oh my God, I'm going home back to the cotton fields. And he was not sure. And he hid it off with the guys you see in the previous picture. He hid it off with those guys, big time, really big time. Yeah. So, so that's the story let's, of this. Let's talk yeah. about, yeah. The, you know, as you say, the song for which the, the book, book is named. So this is 1965. 1965, yeah. Which, of course, is the greatest year in the history of singles. Yeah, pretty much. We, we all agree on that, don't we? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Fine. Yeah. Um, and uh, but there's arguments about the, the authorship of this this song. Yeah, Go on. there are, but I I, I find them um, uh, there are arguments. And when I when I came to interview Steve, he's you know he was kind of ready to to, to have to defend himself on that. The fact is, that although Wilson has a co-writing credit on "If You Need Me" and "I Found a Love," he did not write much on his own. He really didn't. And he sat down with Steve Cropper and. And they, on their first session, they turned out two hit singles and a couple more great songs. And I can't believe that Wilson could have brought those songs in, in you know, completed. I think that probably what happened is Wilson thought that he somehow owned the, the, the sense of the name in the midnight hour because he'd been using it a lot in songs. And um, Steve says, yeah, there might be some truth to that, but I put in more of the, of, of the other songs. Um, there, is a, there is a backstory to that that I, I, I get into as well which I think that Atlantic and Stax had to figure out, well, what's in it for Stax if we bring down the Atlantic artist, you know, if, if, if it's not coming out on Stax. Well, if Steve Cropper gets a co-write, that goes back to Stax has its publishing arm. 
So, you know, there's money's being made all around. And I could see, I could see, I'm only hypothesizing here, uh, lawyers, beware. But I mean, you know, in, in fairness, I could see a scenario where Jerry Wexler from Atlantic and Jim Stewart go off for, for dinner and, and say, well, you know, we split the publishing. Does that help? And yeah. they say, yeah, that helps a lot. But I, I have no doubt. Look, I love Steve. Um, some, some of these stories have followed him around, but he, he is one of the greats. He was the main guy at the studio. I think there's some animosity around because he was the producer, he was the arranger, and he tended to get more of the songwriting credits. This came up earlier with Robbie Robertson. I mean, it, it, you can never settle these arguments. Right. There is no... You can't, you, you can't even settle them in a court of law. You can't prove that 51% of a song, 49%. You can't prove it. Now, you write many pages in the book about that song. Don't yeah. You? Really, really well. Tell us why... That is so good. Well, because as I actually quote somebody else writing, it is most the song that is most emblematic of the Southern Soul era. To me, you, I mean, you said it on your introduction, I think it's the song. Uh, but there are things that make it masterful. It, I love the fact that, it's, that, that Wilson and Steve wrote that song pretty much the night before, and, and it's recorded the next day. I love that it's recorded in mono. I love that, that, that Atlantic was smart enough not to put female vocals on it. Um, I love that you can't even hear the piano, which is not Booker T, by the way, but you can't even hear the piano. You're really just hearing guitar, bass, and drums, and the horns, and Wilson. I love the fact that there's the, 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 you, the way you hear Cropper, who had the syncopated part going, that Jerry Wexler, who had no business telling them what to do, was in the studio and said, just do, yeah, just chop, chop with, yeah. with, with Al Jackson. And he hits the two and the four with Al Jackson. And I make the point that's more like a rock beat, which, mm. you know, I think that's one of the reasons that, yeah. you know, it a is. lot of white people really got into... Well, that's what we were yeah. talking about this earlier yeah. this week. That, 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 record. Well, the, the, if you listen to the, the, the career of free... Yeah. is inconceivable without yeah. right. the midnight There's, hour. Yeah. It's that sound, isn't it? Yeah. It's that kind of held back sound, isn't it? It is. And I think you can look at um, you know, the, the rivalry he had with James Brown and say that James Brown's records, you know, that, 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 that recent book that came out about him, The One, is, is really, you know, it's a double entendre, but it's about you could do whatever you wanted in the measure as long as you came back to The One on the bar. But, but with Wilson Pickett recording with these white guys, it's subliminal. They can't help it. Al Jackson, of course, is not white. But there's a lot of, like, hitting the two and the four. And I think that that helped bring Wilson into more of a rock crowd. So I know that The Who were covering his songs. Every British invasion band was playing in the midnight hour. Um, they weren't playing James... Well, The Who were playing James Brown songs, but there weren't too many groups that had the guts that The Who did to play James Brown songs. <laughs> and so you could see James Brown got the black crowd. I think Otis also probably more smoother you know i think i think there's something about that recording that that leans it towards a more of a rock rock audience yeah, rock yeah jumping about again actually one of my favorite bits in the book is you, you have a an interview with a with a young guy who joined wilson's group later on yeah and he just talks about how they played everything too fast well yeah this is much later i mean you're you yeah know, but you're it's jumping, just interesting yeah. isn't yeah. it that it's that it's that tension which is what makes this thing so magical. It's actually quite a slow song yeah. in the midnight hour. When you listen to it, it's pretty slow. Um, something else to point out, I mean, it's a couple of verses, a break, and, and that's about it. It fades out exactly on two and a half minutes. The last words you hear are in the midnight hour. I mean, there, there's stuff about this. This is, this is, to me, it's perfection. And I, it is. I've often thought about just writing a book but people have always done you know, the 50 songs you must hear, that kind of thing. But about like just taking apart certain songs that are perfect. I've always thought like Dancing Queen by ABBA is just like, you, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect pop songwriting. It's just you come in with the chorus. You know, she loves you. You come in with the yeah. chorus. There are certain things that you can do in a song that, that I think this song nailed all of those. It just ticked it every did. single box. Yeah. Absolutely perfectly. Uh, it's another extraordinary story, isn't it? Because I, I, the, the tape of Mustang, the, the best yes. take, it was, it was yeah. sort of shattered by the machine, wasn't it? That's Pieced right. together by, I think it's Tom Dowd, isn't that it? That is Tom yeah. Dowd, who you see there. That's a couple of years you know, down the line. Mm. So um, 
Wilson goes to Muscle Shoals. We'd probably have done fine without the, 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 the little picture of the Muscle Shoals guys first, but that was the band he recorded with, the three white guys we saw before, um, or four, four of them. That was part of the, 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 the Muscle Shoals group, Jimmy Johnson, the guitarist, Roger Hawkins, the drummer. It's worth noting that when Wilson goes to Muscle Shoals to fame, the first song they record is Land of a Thousand Dances. It's probably, along with Mustang Sally and a couple more, you know, his symbolic, you know, seminal songs. But compare that to In the Midnight Hour, one of them's slow and clinical. Land of a Thousand Dances is on fire. It's rushing away with itself. If not for Roger Hawkins holding a 160 BPM drum beat, um, the whole thing would collapse. Now, talking about songs collapsing, they come back for the next session, record Mustang Sally, which was written by Bonnie Rice, Samak Rice from the Falcons. It has been covered by the Young Rascals on the B-side of Good Loving, so it's not obscure. All right, okay. They did it in a very bluesy version, but Wilson wants to do it in Bonnie's version, Samak Rice's version, and do a soul version. And Spooner Oldham, who we saw in that previous picture, the keyboard player who does a fantastic organ stuff on that song, it makes a song, including that whoop, whoop, that's in the core at the, at the end of each verse. He said that, you know, we put down the instruments. He said, you know when you've done a perfect take, because everybody just gets up and walks to the control room. It's like, it's subconscious. You just get up and do it. And we got up and did it. And we all loved Wilson. We were having a great time. We go up to hear it. Somebody, and this is a story corroborated by everybody who was there. Somebody either sat on one of the tape machines or, or hit a button. The tape went flying, but didn't just fly off the spool. It broke into bits, lots of pieces, lots and lots of pieces. And Wilson, of course, was... Uh, so Spooner said, you know, this was the tape. Yeah, we they knew they could never beat it. improve we were on We never going to beat it. Wilson is, is probably just, you know, I, I know this is going to go out on podcasts, but, you know, the MF, he probably... Yeah. Tom Dowd, who's a very cool guy, says, OK, guys, lunch break. You guys go out for lunch, come back in an hour. OK, just take a breather. Leave it with me. And uh, Tom, who had worked on the Manhattan Project, um, so smart guy... Um, who helped invent multi-track recording, knows what he's doing. If anybody in the world was going to basically splice back together, um, you know, uh, uh, these tapes, or tape back together, spliced tapes, splice them all back from 40 different pieces. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, but without the images. And he put it back together. And um, you could say he put it back together perfectly by the fact that it's been such a, a classic and a hit record. But... Um, I make it a point in the book that there is one little point, it's about somewhere like 2 minutes 23, where there's a drum shuffle that is nowhere else in the song. And I actually played this as a reading. I read that section and played the song. And everybody went, that's the part, isn't it? And I challenged people, go back and listen to Mustang Sally. And either Roger Hawkins goes on board with this and just throws in this little shuffle... Or there's one little part where they didn't quite get it right. So Tom Dowd, yeah, we, it's a mistake. We found it, finally. But, you know, credit to Tom Dowd. That's one too much detail, is it? Yeah, yeah one of the engineering greats. <laughs> this is the way we thought this was a fake picture, actually, but I double-checked it. It's not, because... Uh, it's our Woodstock connection, isn't it? It's yeah, like yeah. how we tie in with uh, yeah, Barney's book. Yeah, that's right. Book. But this is, I think it's a 1966 uh, Atlantic uh, release party and, and Jimi Hendrix is playing the guitar in the band at that time. Yeah, he's playing for King Curtis and the Kingpins. Yeah. Um, that's what Jimmy was doing. And that's uh, Cornell Dupree on the other guitar there. It was Percy Sledge's party. Um, well, it was Atlantic Records party. They had a number one single with Percy Sledge, uh, When a Man Loves a Woman. This was two days before Wilson went down to Muscle Shoals for the first time, where we recorded Land of a Thousand Dances. He was convinced to get up and uh, show how you really sing soul music. And so I think he got up and basically, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, showed who was the best soul singer in the room. And that is Jimmy behind him. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that is absolutely Jimi Hendrix behind him. His mantra with his mate at one point is, is, is kind of um, the way he wants to live. His maxim is, give me some juice, turn me loose, and let me hang out like a wild neck goose. That's right. It's brilliant. I him and Don that... Covey came up with that. Him and Don Covey yeah. were very, very tight. They came up with that one. Yep. So this is just him touring. Um, I believe this is in Philadelphia. You can see who else is on the bill. Wilson on the left. Um, you know that's that's one of the uh, one of the, the many incarnations of his live um, live touring groups. Uh, at that point, Buddy Miles was in his band, and unfortunately, he's not in that photograph. Right. But Buddy Miles is actually his drummer. What was he like as a band leader? Was he yeah, described as a slave driver? Don't they? Does he? I mean, yeah, in, occasionally in, punching people if they get the wrong note. You know. Yeah, yeah, that was one way he dealt with it. Yeah. Um, he. Uh, people have said they saw him at the Apollo of the guitarist. If he didn't like the sound of the guitar, he'd walk over and just pull the cord out of the amp. 
he was capable of doing doing that. Um, and and to give him his his credit, because again we can lean into like him being you know like this nasty mean guy, born in that poverty. Um, he was musically instinctive enough that if he had like 12 people on stage and one note was wrong, he would know which instrument, which player, which note. Right. You know, I want to give him credit for that. So if he bawled out a musician, it wasn't just like being the nasty guy. It was usually like yeah. the guy wasn't good enough. What I would like to say is that Sorry. just about everybody who worked with Wilson said that he respected great musicians and they respected him. So when he did ball out a musician, probably the musician was, was not living up to his standard, which is a great way to segue into James Brown. Yes. Was, was he threatened by James Brown? Because, I mean, he'd always... Not, not physically. No. <laughs> For a change. But he, um, you know, he talks about him as being strictly small-time, doesn't he, the whole time. And he, in his mind's eye, he sees him on a little tiny stage, yeah. sweating in some little tiny dive yeah, bar. Yeah, we, we've got to give uh, Nick Kent credit for getting that quote out of, yeah. out of Wilson Pickett. I actually think, Mark, that uh, uh, James was threatened by Wilson. Uh, James was on top. And I think Wilson came along and really challenged James's uh, crown as the kind of king of soul. Um I think James is the one who, who, who felt threatened. They had a, a rivalry that could masquerade as a friendship and, and probably the other way around. James did once invite Wilson around to his house um, when they both lived in sort of Queens, Long Island. Uh, but there's also a story about when Wilson was headlining the Apollo for the first time and James came into the dressing room. You know, James kind of owned the Apollo, as we know, the, uh, not, not literally, but as a performer and sort of dissed Wilson. Um, the, yeah, yeah, interestingly, you have Funky Broadway up there because we associate James Brown with funk, or we associate the word funk with James Brown, but who is the person who took the word funk into the charts for the first time? Wilson Pickett with that record. And I'm, you know, I, I want to make, make the point in the book repeatedly. I make it in the introduction, and then I, I back up this, my, my, my thesis, that Wilson Pickett was not just at the front line of black American music. He was the front line. He led it. And that's one of the examples. That was a song by, by, uh, by Dyke and the Blazers. It was oh, a one-chord yes. riff. It's okay. The singer's not great. You give it to Wilson Pickett, it, it's a hit record. It's an anthem. Um, so, you know, James Brown was an entrepreneur. James Brown was a social leader. James Brown uh, wanted to be all of those things. He wanted to be the hardest working man in show business. Wilson Pickett just wanted to be the greatest soul singer out there. And a little like George Best, you know, like people say about George Best, you know, didn't you ever want to be the greatest footballer ever? And he's like, well, I was. You know, and I think that, that, that that's how Wilson Pickett looked at things. It's like, well, I was. I was the greatest soul singer. I didn't have to do what James Brown did to be the greatest soul yeah. singer. This is, uh, you know, a, a memento of a, a one particularly memorable session. When yeah. is this? 68, 69? Yeah, November 1968. Wilson and Dwayne Allman, peas in a pod, these two. A couple of lunatics. Um, they Dwayne loved each Allman, other. probably only about 21 or 22. Yeah, is that, that very, picture? very young. Like... He is one month into working as a session guitarist at Fame. Um, his band with his brother, that, that they went out um, to California, got a record deal, got two albums, fell apart. Um, he's following another former member of his band trying to get work at Fame. And Rick Hall, whose name has come up a couple of times, you know, takes one look at Dwayne and is kind of like, you know, you don't belong in my studio. Jimmy Johnson, whose name has come up, the rhythm guitarist who's moved a lot into engineering and, and production, was, was different. He said, no, we need Dwayne. Like, Dwayne plays guitar eight hours a day. Dwayne sleeps with the, his guitar. I ain't that dedicated. We need this guy. Forget how he looks. And so Rick Hall moved with the times. Dwayne, the story goes that Dwayne held Wilson back at lunchtime uh, when they're doing these sessions, saying that, you know what, it's hard enough when you guys go to the diner with a black guy, but if you go with a black guy and a hippie, it's just going to be problems. <laughs> I don't think that was it. I think Dwayne had this, this idea, because when the others came back from lunch, it was like, all right, we're doing Hey Jude. And I think that Dwayne Armand knew that he, he, he flexes like guitar muscles on a song for Clarence Carter, uh, but he wasn't really... I think he knew that if we do Hey Jude, I get to... I, I can hear my solo. I can hear Wilson. I can yeah. hear me. And he talked Wilson into it. And these, 
these two guys really did love each other. I got some great quotes from Wilson about Dwayne Armour, like when Wilson spiked the water tank, the water cooler at Fame Studios with Mescaline, um, which was probably not something that used to happen back in 67 at, at no, Fame no. Studios. And, and the recording, it, again, this is one of those, if you haven't heard Hey Jude, you have to listen to Hey Jude. The, the, the interaction between the two of them, it's, you almost imagine that's how they recorded it, you know, standing opposite, they did, standing opposite and each done other. Done spontaneously, wasn't it? They just decided yeah. to do it right there and then. Again, Again, one of these one, one takes, and Jimmy Johnson, uh, part of that session, saying, yeah, we didn't know what was going on during that session. We're like, what the hell is going on here? But he said later we realised what was going on there. Southern Rock was being born in that yeah. coda. You hear the birth of Southern Rock, and he's right, you do. And once again, one of them was bothered to dress. Yes. <laughs> And uh, the other one yeah, hasn't. The other, the other one hasn't. And that, Wait, he bothered to dress again here. My indeed, God, yeah. he, there's a lot of dressing going on here, Tony. There's excess dressing going on. Which, here. considering that you're, you're actually just landed in Ghana, yes. where you probably it's don't... know what you require. Don't, don't, don't really need. Coat. This yeah. was the kind of soul-to-soul. Soul. Yes. Is that right? The, yes. you know, the great package tour that went to... Yeah, it was Ghana. a one-off deal. It was uh, the vision of um, a young white guy whose parents were making a movie in Nigeria at the time, and he had a vision of a black Woodstock in Africa right. and uh, was actually able to pull it off. Uh, it, 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 unbelievably, they wanted to do it in Nigeria. That got politically unstable. They did it in Ghana. Obviously, there were problems, but the, the, the real point about this, uh, the, the, film, the film was made, the film came out, uh, again, Wilson's performances, you see thousands of young black African kids moshing seven years before punk rock, and then you see them stage diving years before punk rock. So, you know, just another thing about where these, thing, where these musics come from. But probably the most important point, James Brown had been to Africa. He didn't want to be part of this, uh, or he'd been to Africa. I think that was enough. Uh, when they came to, like, booking the headline artists, they got Ike and Tina Turner, they got the Staples Singers, they got Roberta Flack. Wilson Pickett was was like, his name was in lights, the other names were down here. Wilson Pickett was a god to these African kids. Mm. Despite what we said about the rock music thing, etc., he was a god to these kids, and it was an immense performance. That movie that is, does now exist on DVD, I highly recommend it, Soul to Soul. Right, right. These are just sort of top-of-the-curve pictures, really. That, that, the last one with the fur coat's fantastic. There's a moment in the book where he tells that we're carrying $10,000 in cash. It's absolutely astonishing, you know. Yeah, band but, members were saying that they go on stage with $10,000 in cash because if, if you didn't know who was carrying it, you had nothing to worry about. If somebody was out there to rob, they, they wouldn't have any idea who oh, had the money. That's yeah, brilliant. yeah. Rather than leave it in the dressing room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So this Makes is sense. with his mother, is that that's right? Mom, yeah, that's with his... his mum in the middle, I think, and his sister on the left, is that right? Yeah, that? That, yeah. That, 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 that's correct. Big family with a lot Great of younger picture. and older sisters. You know, Doug, um, he named an album subsequently on RCA, Miss Lena's Boy. His mum was called Lena. And, um, you know, she beat him a lot as a kid. But he loved her, and talking of doing right by his mother, he bought her a house. When he was rich enough, he took the family out of uh, uh, Alabama up to Louisville, which was a sort of halfway point on the migration up to, to uh, Detroit. A lot of blacks settled. Obviously, Muhammad Ali came out of Louisville. But he bought that house with 24 grand in, in, in cash that he brought down in a suitcase from, <laughs> from New York. So Bobby Womack tells a story in his own book of how he went to Wilson Pickett's house, and, and uh, Wilson opened the cupboard, and all this cash fell out. <laughs> and Bobby's like, why don't you put it in a bank? It'll earn interest. And he's like, I ain't trusting my money with the white man. That's where the white man keeps his money. I keep my money in, in here. Right, yeah. right. And this is how he liked to unwind. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he did have... This is not the boat. This is in Japan in the 80s. It was the wicked picket painted yeah, on the Yeah, he did have it? a boat with a wicked picket on the side. And he did have a Rolls Royce. And he did have a Ferrari. And yeah, he liked to live large. And uh, I like that picture because, look... Here he is in the 80s. He's, he's maybe a little bit old for this. Then again, you know, it's working for him, right? <laughs> I think he's seen Miami Vice, hasn't he? You know, yeah. I, no, I could have a bit of that. This is a kind of pivotal moment where he leaves, uh, he leaves Atlantic, I think, for RCA. That's um, 
that's uh, Jerry Wexler that he recorded. Yes, it is. And then he made Mr. Magic Man, and you described that as being... Uh, you, it's brilliant that you say he looks like a ventriloquist dummy on the cover of this thing, which is brilliant. But it's a sort of disaster. I mean, you can't blame him for embracing disco, because disco's arrived, and all the soul singers feel a bit kind of high and dry. But it didn't work, did it? I mean, it was a, no, a desperate I, failure. It, it is, and what's interesting is the way... I, I, I assume this is deliberate um, uh, sort of contradiction that, that you put well, up. Well, I just because... put in one of the great records that he exactly. made. Exactly. Um, Be- because he look how look how smart he looks on the exciting Wilson Pickett, and uh, it doesn't work there. And I, you know, Atlantic messed up his album covers as well. I have I have plenty of bad words to say about Atlantic. They couldn't get the dates right on his album covers. You know, he uh, with Hey Jude, they they should have been able to market that to a rock audience. They didn't, and they were they had their eyes on the Rolling Stones and Led yeah. Zeppelin. Yeah. And the black artists felt really hard done by. And I understand that. The fact is that those guys. Those acts sold millions of albums and soul R&B acts did not. They sold millions of singles. Yeah. We all know where the money is. Again, it's like songwriting. There's not necessarily a right and a wrong. But he basically, he starts arguing about royalties. He makes himself difficult around Atlantic. They don't mind seeing the back of him. RCA signs him for a million dollars. He gets a million dollars. That's the first album. It's actually the best of the four albums he does for RCA, and, and, and it's not a very good album at that. And his career just plummets. It's a, it's a great shame. And I say that in a way, never, has, never have you seen a career just like pivot on, on a change of record label like that. For, you well, know, he going just sort of top. disappeared for about 10 years, didn't he? He was just sort of not really occasionally seen go to the grocery yeah, store. Yeah, bounced, and... bounced around different record labels and the gap between the albums became longer. Uh, there's one or two good records in there. There's a good pre-disco record, then an awful uh, attempt at disco back on Atlantic, actually, funnily enough, an Atlantic subsidiary, back in Muscle Shoals. Um, awful record. That's the only one I can't listen to, some of the tracks yeah. on that. And then just disappointments more than anything else. And, uh, and then he just, you know, he's taken too much refuge in alcohol and cocaine. Dovey leaves him when she feels like her life is going to be in danger. And that's really it. At that point, the wheels have come off. And then, but if you hang around long enough, you are, you come back as history, don't you? Yes, you do. And, yeah. and he was he was the beneficiary of this, wasn't he, with the commitments and so forth? Yeah, he really was. And I love the fact that that he's not part of the book of Roddy Doyle's book, but he's he's the central character in the movie, because clearly, if they wanted to to have the idea of who's going to come to town that we can hinge this on, I, I was running through the list of names. If you if it wasn't Aretha, it was going to be Wilson Pickett. Uh, of all the people who are alive. He's not in the movie. I think so many of us think, isn't Wilson in that movie? He's actually not in the movie. He didn't know about it till it was made. He had, by that point, gotten himself an a-, a new agent. His old manager had died. The mafia guy had died. He'd gotten a female um, agent who now became a sort of management who very quickly said, we'll have some of that. And he played with the commitments at the premier parties across America. And also they used in the Minute Hour, I think, didn't they? And Mustang yeah, Mustang Sally. Sally. Yeah, yeah, yeah so for, for sure. Money. So he did give him a bit of a boost, but he hoped, I think he did appear in the Blues Brothers 2000, but, but yeah. he was really hoping this was going to resuscitate his career and that didn't really work, did it? No, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, hands up anybody who's seen Blues Brothers 2000. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> All right, and that actually, right. his hands. So one hand went up, and hands up who's seen the Blues Brothers. Right, so all of you understand, probably you got the word of mouth that this was a dog of a movie. Um, he does valiantly with Eddie Floyd. They, they try their best. It's, it's not happening. To their credit, they go on the David Letterman show, performing 6345789, him and Eddie. Those two go back, as we know now, years. And they have um, the MGs basically behind them. The Blues Brothers band, I should say, behind them. And Paul Schaefer's band behind that. And they kill it. They kill it. And again, that's one of those performances that by this point, these guys are getting on and they nail it. And that's I love the fact that every now and then you put Wilson with somebody. And if that's what I mean. If they are good enough, you bring out the best in Wilson, he'll bring out the best in them. And this is just the end of the career, really. Just, you know, he died very young. Was he 59? No. Yeah, he was 64. 64, And it's that kind of age where if you have lived hard and abused your body, that's when your body will will give up on you in your 60s. Um, You know, I've interviewed a lot of people for this book who've made it a lot further down the line. Um, There were some who didn't make it that far. There were some who'd had strokes. 
Wilson's body. One of the other things, it, 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 it's sad because and it, it does go back, there are lots of comparisons with Keith Moon. It, you might not think it, but we touched on some of them. They, could, they were both alcoholics. You know, they were both charismatic. They were both talented. They both had cocaine addictions. They both could be very violent when all those things, you know, when the alcohol and the cocaine kicked in. They both refused help. They both wouldn't see psychiatrists. You know, they... They, people loved both of these characters, and I'm sure there are countless more people I could write books about that would be have the same story. People wanted to help them, and they won't take help. And that part is, you know, that's really hard. The guy who produced this record, John Tiven, is one of the good people. And he was able to say, you know, Wilson, we could do a record that's organic. We don't need to put you with synthesizers, and we don't, you don't need to be current. We go back to your roots and be, go back further than your roots. We'll make a blues record. It's a pretty good record. It's not perfect. It's pretty good. It did get a Grammy nomination. And Wilson, to the end, he, it, was, it was almost like as a category for Comeback R&B Album of the Year. He was up with Barry White and Peebo Bryson and I've, maybe Aaron Neville, but I said Barry White won. And instead of Wilson being like, I got back to the Grammys, you know, my career's back on track. He's like, how comes that fat bastard won the, <laughs> <laughs> won the Grammy? <laughs> For Wilson, the glass was too often half empty, which is bizarre because actually he never had money problems because he carried on performing all the way through. You know, he could always perform. He, you know, he never had problems with the tax man. He always had money in the bank. He was always able to live large. So you would have thought that he's somebody who could have said the glass is half full. And in some ways yeah. he did. In some ways he did. But, but that anecdote about the Grammys, apparently he retired to his room with his girlfriend at the time and wouldn't come to the parties. And, and it's like, come on, man. You, you're like, <laughs> you, you made it. You're halfway back. You, you, know, you didn't make an album for 12 years. This one got a Grammy nomination. But... That's the way it can be. That's the way it can be. It's, yeah, that's how things are. What well, it's the biggest revelation. You spend all that time immersed in his story. I mean, what, 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 what was the one thing that you really learned about him you didn't know? Um, I think I really just... I, I think I really enjoyed learning about his childhood. You know, I don't know that there's any one thing, and, and I have been asked that before, and I, and I knew I needed to get the answer ready for when I was asked it again. I go, went into this book knowing that he was tough. I knew it was called The Wicked Picket. And, and I'd done the book on Keith Moon and I was about ready after 20 years to write about another person with this much problems. Um, so I was not enormously surprised by... I was surprised by the violence that Keith Moon, you, you know, uh, meted out on people. I, I, was, I was ready for it with Wilson. Um, I just think that I actually just... I, it's not the answer, uh, an answer to the question you asked, but I really thoroughly enjoyed learning about the early days, and they were kind of revelatory to me. I learned so much about the culture. I learned more about gospel than I ever knew. I learned more about the migration, about Detroit. I learned all of that stuff. And for me, there were lots of small revelations there. I think for somebody reading the book, it could be one big revelation but I kind of went in with eyes reasonably open I mean maybe maybe the story about the white that you know the white kid um but I had read about that beforehand and um you know that was that was confirmed to me the funny thing was with Keith Moon so many stories were apocryphal and and and, and it was okay because there was actually always another one behind that that people didn't know about but actually Wilson pretty much all the stories were true were true yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the white baby at yeah. the Apollo yeah. true shooting a gun at his brother True. Yeah. yeah. Keith Dream On. Yes. <laughs> well, look, it's an extraordinary story, compellingly told, if I may say so. Thank you. Uh, and I'm sure Tony would be delighted to sign a copy for anybody who wants one. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Afterwards, but uh, it's been terrific talking to you. Yeah. Uh, please share your appreciation for Tony Fletcher. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.